Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the original King Kong from 1933. The studio was RKO Radio Pictures. The release date was April 7th, 1933. The running time, 100 minutes, and of course, it was in black and white. The budget was 672000 and the box office took in $5.3 million, which would be $105 million today, and this was during the Great Depression. It grossed over 90000 in its opening weekend, the biggest opening ever at the time. Leonard Maltin from his classic movie guide gives it 4 out of 4 stars. And his quick little synopsis is, A classic version of a Beauty and Beast theme is a movie-going must. With Willis O'Brien's special effects, an animation of the monster ape Kong is still unsurpassed. The final sequence atop the Empire State Building is now cinema folklore. Max Steiner's music score is also memorable, followed immediately by The Sung of Kong and remade in 1976 and 2005. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 98% fresh from 62 reviews. Their critics' consensus is King Kong explores the soul of a monster, making audiences scream and cry throughout the film, in large part due to Kong's breathtaking special effects. So seeing the original King Kong at a very young age was just as powerful as watching it as an adult. The film was scary, it was exhilarating, adventurous, and sad, all bundled together in 100 minutes. I love King Kong as much today as I did when I was a kid. Okay, let's get into the main cast. You have Faye Ray, who plays Anne Darrow. Ray would forever be known and associated with King Kong and her ear-piercing screams throughout the film, which you will hear which I'm sure influenced movie makers of horror films for generations to come. She started in silent films in the early 1920s before transitioning to talkies, and she appeared mostly in horror and thriller films like Dr. X, Mystery of the Wax Museum, and The Most Dangerous Game with Joel McRae. Jean Harl was RKO's original choice to play Anne Darrow, but she was under contract to MGM, and then Ray landed the role she would forever be known for. Robert Armstrong plays Carl Denham, and like Ray, Armstrong would appear in many films throughout his long career, but King Kong would be his most recognizable role. He also appeared in The Most Dangerous Game with Ray in 1932, and Armstrong was also in the very good crime drama G-Men with uh, James Cagney in 1935, which I did an episode for a few weeks back, so go check that out. Bruce Cabot plays Jack Driscoll. This would be one of Cabot's first films, and also his most famous role of his career, like many in this film. He would go on to appear in films like Fury in 1936, directed by Fritz Lang, and would be a staple as a side character in many of John Wayne films, 11 in total. My favorite being McClintock. The writers and directors were Miriam C. Cooper and Ernest Shostak. I'll cover their history in the making of the film portion, which would be now. So what makes the success of King Kong even more impressive was that the audiences were paying what little money they had to see this film during the height of the Great Depression. The film was such a must-see event that even a historical financial crisis couldn't keep people away. It was completely unique for the time because the film wasn't a book adaptation, nor was it a play adaptation. The only way this sort of production could be made was on film. It was groundbreaking for its stop-motion effects and the fact that such a motion could be made from an 18-inch puppet and it really shows the brilliance of the filmmakers on this production. Marion C. Cooper, who was one of the directors and producers on the film, was fascinated by large gorillas at a young age, 
and he had an adventure book about an explorer who went to Africa in pursuit of this mythical wild gorilla. And this sort of adventure spirit in Cooper eventually translated to the foundation of King Kong years later. Cooper wanted to try everything and was afraid of nothing, but he was incredibly intelligent and a business executive. He pursued Pancho Villa in Mexico in 1916 and fought in World War I as a fighter pilot. He was essentially the real Carl Denham in many ways. After being shot down and wounded in Germany, Cooper, during his recuperation, met what became a lifelong friend in Ernest Shostak, who would become the co-producer on King Kong. Shostak shared Cooper's love of adventure and film, and they wanted to make adventure documentaries together. Shotzak shot footage in war zones during World War I and was just fearless, just like Cooper. Essentially, the character of Jack Driscoll was Shostak, and Shostak's camera brilliance led to the amazing shots for King Kong. Many of the prehistoric creatures on Skull Island were inspired by many real exotic animals the duo found during their early documentary films, like kimono dragons, which became larger than life on film during King Kong. This is what made King Kong so groundbreaking. The two men weren't inspired with what they saw on film from others, but what they experienced in real life. They took those real-life experiences and put them on film. The co-screenplay writer was Shostak's wife, Ruth Rose. She went through many of the crazy adventures with them, and in many ways was like Anne Darrow, and then falls for Jack Driscoll. Rose was invaluable to the filmmaking duo, and a perfect complement to their adventure and filming ideas. She was grounded and understood how they worked together. Cooper was leery in the beginning, thinking she would just slow them down, but that wasn't the case at all. What kept coming back to Cooper was his desire to have a film about a mythical giant gorilla who was brought into civilization from a faraway jungle. But nobody wanted to make this film, and he just couldn't generate any interest. Plus, he couldn't put any of his idea into a visual context. Then he met stop-motion animator Willis O'Brien. Without O'Brien, King Kong is never made because his special effects had never been done on screen before and he was absolutely the pioneer for stop-motion photography. And as many film industry insiders and historians will claim, almost every early special effects person was inspired to get into the business because they saw O'Brien's work on King Kong. He was the master architect on how to film these special effects shots. O'Brien experimented by bringing sculptures to life, and eventually this technique led to what mass audiences saw in King Kong. These early stop-motion shots from O'Brien were brought by Thomas Edison, who was the early inventor of motion pictures. O'Brien's stop-motion effects were the standard for over 50 years before the invention of computer effects. He was an incredible person who really isn't given the mass credit he deserves in the history of how motion pictures evolved. Early audiences did see O'Brien's work in 1925's The Lost World, which showcased the early stages of stop-motion dinosaurs, which become bigger and better in King Kong. O'Brien wanted to get bigger and better <laughs> with his films and had a project called Creation, but it lacked the large financial backing to truly produce his vision. And that is how the backing from Cooper and Shodestack and then O'Brien's vision all came together. Cooper basically came to work at RKO with David O. Selznick under the condition that he get to make his gorilla film. Cooper saw the minutes of footage that O'Brien created on creation and knew he had his technical visionary for his gorilla film. And much of the content ideas from creation were eventually used on Skull Island and King Kong, like the dinosaurs in the awesome jungle sets. What O'Brien and his team accomplished special effects-wise on King Kong was unprecedented. It was one of the first films to have an animated character as the main character. And that was also the genius of the filmmakers. 
King Kong wasn't a puppet to movie viewers. They created and shot him to be almost like a human and have emotions, though he wasn't real. That is art at its finest. The genius of the producers is that they kept the visual effects a secret to the movie going public. Nobody knew this giant creature was only 18 inches tall. For all anyone knew, especially in the primitive news era of the 1930s, they had filmed someone in a costume or created a giant mechanical version. However, the secrecy had its price. Willis O'Brien never got the credit he deserved about his works of art at the time because the filmmakers wanted to add sort of a mystique to the film. So yes, it paid off in promotion, but it's a shame that we don't have interviews from that era about how O'Brien painstakingly created his masterpiece effects. Marcel Delgado was the sculptor of the Kong puppet. O'Brien had made offers to Delgado to work with him for years, but Delgado always turned him down because he didn't think they would be stable gigs. He finally agreed on King Kong and was vital about how Kong looked in the final outcome. However, O'Brien had to first create a metal skeleton which allowed the puppet to move. This was very complicated to create, and there was no template to go off of. O'Brien invented it all himself. This was essentially like creating the eternal parts of an automobile from scratch, without a template, before putting the outer body of the vehicle together. Delgado and O'Brien had to keep rebuilding the puppet while filming, as the hot lights and constant moving would put wear and tear on Kong. This is why Kong looks slightly different in shots throughout the film. This is all handmade stuff, no CGI, of course. In many ways, this is the charm. It's not supposed to be perfect. The rawness makes it beautiful. Like you can see the fur stand up on Kong. And this was from the movement of O'Brien's hands on the puppet during the stop animation. Which actually gives realism to it, especially for the time. Another example is the model of Kong was smaller in the jungle scenes compared to a larger model in New York City. This was by design. Cooper felt the city and the buildings were so large that Kong needed to be even bigger once he arrived to New York. Stop motion animation is very much like cartoon animation, with the main difference being that instead of paper pictures, you're using a model puppet. Stop motion is incredibly labor intensive and takes tons and tons of time to get a very minimal amount of footage. Also, there's no way to preview your work. You don't actually see the outcome until it's put together on film, and if it's wrong, you have to do it all over again. I mean, you really have to have an incredible talent and patience to do this sort of work. Max Steiner was the brilliant composer on King Kong, and the sound effects by Murray Spivak adds to the terror of the monsters, along with the basic jungle sounds. He created all of these sound effects by scratch. None of these existed before. And he created all these different noises from his own creative mind, to how these monsters might sound. Plus, the auto technology of the time was so primitive that the outcome of these effects are all the more impressive. RKO wanted to use existing score music on the film because the budget was going to be much higher than they planned. However, Steiner knew that there was no way to use existing music for a film as new and as groundbreaking as King Kong. So Cooper took Steiner aside and asked him if he could create a fresh score for the film if he gave him $50,000 and the rest is history, and it's one of the best scores in the history of film, without a doubt. He created 70 minutes of score music in eight weeks of work. Steiner and Spivak were so in tune, no pun intended, that often the sound effect works in conjunction with the score. They enhance each other in harmony. It's really a perfect match, and you'll hear later in this film. All right, let's get into the film. For my DVD version, there is a four-minute musical overture as the intro, and I'm not sure if this was part of the original theatrical release. 
Uh, the actual title cards of the film begin with a rousing score before introducing King Kong as the eighth wonder of the world, and we then get the following old Arabian proverb. As the prophet said, And lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty, and it stayed its hand from killing. And from that day, it was as one dead. <laughs> so this wasn't an old Arabian proverb, as it turns out. This was actually written by Marion Cooper. <laughs> but it sounded good, right? The film begins with two men chatting about a large ship that is about to take off with a film crew led by Carl Denham, that's played by Robert Armstrong. And one of the men is a theatrical agent named Charles Weston, played by Sam Hardy. And he's questioning one of the dock workers about the voyage. The worker seems to think there's something crazy about the upcoming voyage as there's going to be a crew much larger than normal ship voyages. Nobody really knows what Denham has planned, but they know he's a maverick. Denham wants to sail as soon as possible to avoid the monsoons. If the weather is treacherous, he won't be able to get the footage he needs. Denham can't get an actress for his film because the agents are suspicious of this film. He's not telling anyone the location or what they will be doing. Denham decides to go scouting New York City for the right female for his film. While walking around town, he meets a woman who is accused of stealing fruit from a local stand. She's lightheaded from being hungry and is jobless, and her name is Ann Darrow, played by Faye Ray. Denham takes her to get something to eat and offers her the job in his film. Anne is hesitant, as she should be, but she has no real job prospects or future and agrees to go on the voyage. Anne then meets Jack Driscoll, played by Bruce Cabot, who is always part of Denham's crew and isn't thrilled about having a woman on board for this type of trip and lets her know it. But Anne has a charm about her and Jack eventually warms up to her. Though he's trying to act like he doesn't find her charming and beautiful, which is kind of amusing. So Denham received intel about a Norwegian crew that discovered this hidden island and gave him specifics of its location. Denham shows a hand-drawn map of this exotic island which has a giant wall which is used to protect the natives from something they greatly fear. This is where he talks about Kong, which many feel it's simply a mythical tale, but never believed is real. This is what Denham wants to find out, if the legend of Kong is true, and if it is, he wants to film footage of it. Denham decides to give Anne a film test on the ship before they get to the island, and here we get the famous Fay Ray scream. Oh, you put on a Beauty and Beast costume, eh? Mm-hmm. It's the prettiest. All right. Just uh, stand right over there. I'm sort of nervous. Suppose I don't photograph well. You don't have to worry about that. If I hadn't been sure, I wouldn't have brought you halfway around the world. What'll I do? Well, we'll start with a profile. When I start cranking, I hold it a minute and then turn slowly toward me. Uh, you see me. You smile a little, then you listen, and then you laugh. All right? Camera. Looks kind of silly, don't it? Pretty damn, huh? You think maybe he'd like to take my picture, huh? Them cameras cost money. Shouldn't think he'd risk it. Well, that's fine, Ann. Now we'll try one with a filter, eh? Do you always take the pictures yourself? Ever since the trip I made to Africa, I don't got a swell picture of a charging rhino, but the cameraman got scared. <laughs> that darn fool, I was right there with a the rifle. Seems he didn't trust me to get the rhino before it got him. I'm fooled with cameraman sense. I do it myself. Think he's crazy, Skipper? Just enthusiastic. Now, Ann, in this one, you're looking down. When I start to crank, you look up slowly. You're quite calm, 
You don't expect to see a thing. Then you just follow my directions. All right? Camera. Look up slowly, Ann. That's it. You don't see anything. Now look higher. Still higher. Now you see it. You're amazed. You can't believe it. Your eyes open wider. It's horrible, Ann, but you can't look away. There's no chance for you, Ann. No escape. You're helpless, Ann. Helpless. There's just one chance. If you can scream, but your throat's paralyzed. Try to scream, Ann. Cry. Perhaps if you didn't see it, you could scream. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, Ann. Scream for your life. What's he think she's really going to see? The hidden land is called Skull Island, which is an awesome name, by the way. And again, part of the greatness of early films is the underlying score. Here is no different. bigger than this, nobody knows who built it. Oh boy, what a chance, what a picture. Come on. Yeah, that, they're saying come, come. Hope you talk their lingo, Skipper. You catch any words yet? I'm not sure. Sounds something like the language the Nias Islanders speak. What do you suppose is happening? Oh, they're up to some of their heathen tricks. But don't go rushing out to sea. All right, but isn't it exciting? Sure. I wish we'd left you on the ship. Oh, I'm so glad you did. Wait, well, easy now. Wait till I see what goes on. Hey, Skipper, come here and get a load of this. Ever seen anything like that before in your life?
better only get a picture before they see us. Hey, you with the camera. Come here. I want to see. Come on. Hold on. Be careful. He's offering to trade six of his women for Anne. You got her into this, Denim. Tida. Tida. Malem Ani Rota Nahi. I'm going to take her back to the ship. Better all get out of here before they think to cut us off from the beach. I guess so, but tell them we'll be back tomorrow to make friends. Dulu. Dulu, he tego. Bala. Dulu. Get going, Ann. Don't be scared. Everything's all right. Smile, Ann, and talk to Jack. Keep a chin up.
I could have sworn the chief said Costco at some point, because even there, people love Costco. The run-in with the island chief has led Jack to become even more fond of Anne, as he naturally wants to protect her from harm. Which leads to a funny scene for modern viewers as Jack says he loves her, and Anne nonchalantly says, But Jack, you hate women! (laughs) Everything seems to be going swell until a few of the islanders decide to do a sneak attack on the boat and they kidnap Anne. The plan is to sacrifice her as the new bride of Kong. Charlie the cook discovered Anne's necklace on deck and realizes she's been kidnapped. The crew rushes back to the island to save her. The villagers carry torches in celebration of presenting Kong with a bride. The set is really terrific as you see what appears like a giant wall and door open which would allow Kong to eventually appear. Anne is taken to a stage where she is tied up by her hands by two giant posts. The score for this scene is awesome. The giant doors are then closed while they run up to the top of the wall to wait for Kong to appear. The reveal is truly breathtaking even today. Alright, so I realize that younger viewers might think that the special effects here aren't amazing, but they're simply wrong. Imagine seeing King Kong on screen in 1933. It must have been awe-inspiring and terrifying, and in many ways much more intense than CGI of today. Plus, the screams from Fay Ray are unmatched. The crew led by Jack and Denim raid the gates in pursuit of Anne and Kong. While the entire movie is terrific, this is now when the film never loses its momentum, and you get to not only see Kong, but all of the other giant creatures on Skull Island. For example, they run into a dinosaur-looking creature, which they neutralize with a gas bomb, and then shoot and kill it. I guess this creature was a Stegosaurus, according to the Kong experts, but they just call it a prehistoric beast in the film, and the up-close shots of the creature are just terrific. They then think they found Kong in a river, but instead they run into another giant creature, a brontosaurus, while rowing in a tiny boat. And this scene is great and terrifying as you see this creature with a long neck pick up many of the crew with its mouth and then chuck him back into the water. The creature then chases the guys into the jungle and finally catches one of them who climbs up a tree, 
only to rip him to shreds with his teeth before tossing him away like a rag doll. It's another great scream here. The guys then run into Kong, who takes a giant tree log that the guys are on and dumps him into a giant pit. Now, again, I realize that these scenes are very visual, but again, the score is second to none, so it's worth including just for that, and then you can kind of imagine Kong roaring and beating his chest as he dumps the guys like they're nothing but tiny bugs. So what is amusing about the film, even with all the horror and the mayhem, is there are moments of levity, like when Jack is hiding in a cave below Kong, 
And then Kong reaches in to try to grab Jack, and he gets poked by a knife, which leads you to almost see Kong as a sympathetic creature for the first time, when he actually shows that he can be harmed, and he inspects his stabbed hand while showing pain and emotion on his face. So then Kong decides to forget about Jack when he hears Anne screaming, no surprise there, as a Tyrannosaurus Rex is about to attack her. Kong rushes off to see why Anne is screaming, which leads to one of the many highlights of the film, the Battle of Kong vs. the T-Rex. The back and forth is tremendous, with the sound effects really adding to the fight. So Kong will punch the T-Rex almost like a boxer and then body slam it before getting thrown off while the T-Rex slithers its tail. Really, I, I truly believe the special effects hold up amazingly well today. Plus, if you think about how violent and somewhat gory the outcome is, it's really badass. You literally see Kong stretch, crack, and ultimately break the T-Rex's jaw with blood pouring out. It's awesome. I mean, seriously, in 1933, people must have been like fainting in the aisles. I always loved how Kong would then play with the dead T-Rex kind of like flapping its jaws back and forth before roaring and then beating his chest in celebration of his victory. It took seven weeks to film this T-Rex scene. You really can't appreciate how talented and meticulous Willis O'Brien and his team worked to make this scene as awesome as it is. Also, they sort of invented in a new way of filming because they were showing Fay Ray in the scene where it appears that a giant T-Rex is approaching her. In actuality, it's a giant screen with the already filmed footage of the creatures running as the background, which is called rear screen projection. So the actor doesn't really have to imagine they're seeing a giant creature, they will actually see it themselves. The amount of groundbreaking filming techniques on this movie can't be overstated. In the meantime, the only survivors from the crew that went in to save Anne are Jack and Denim. What a shocker. You can't kill off your two leading men this early in the film. However, there still is a crew of men on the boat who didn't go onto the island. Denim goes back to them to get his weapons to attack the next morning, while Jack tries to save Anne from Kong in the meantime. Kong takes Anne to a cave and lets her out of his grasp just long enough for a giant snake to appear and get Anne to scream her lungs out. This is another great battle as the snake wraps around Kong's neck before he grabs a hold of it and smashes it off the rocks like he's using it like using it as a whip. Of course, he celebrates by beating his chest. It's the best when he does that. So the really awesome part about this last scene that I just noticed in my latest viewing is that before Kong attacks the snake, He's actually got his back turned to Anne and the snake while he's picking flowers and smelling them, and he's actually going to presumably give them to Anne. This uh, flower plan is quickly nixed because he has to fight off the snake. However, it's just sort of detailed storyboarding by O'Brien with the Kong puppet that makes him such a genius that most viewers won't even notice. Eventually, Anne passes out, and this leads to an amusing scene where Kong picks her up while she's passed out and examines her, almost like a child. He's fascinated by her clothing, and he's actually gentle with her. And when she awakens, he's almost tickling her, which is pretty funny, but it's accentuated by the score every time he does it. So Jack accidentally pushes a rock, which Kong goes to investigate, which leaves Anne alone. Not surprisingly, she then gets attacked by a giant flying creature, which actually picks up Anne in its mouth before Kong comes back in the nick of time to rip the creature apart. 
really, I can't speak more highly enough than so much of this awesome action that occurs on the island, especially after a somewhat slow buildup prior to getting to the island. So while fighting off the flying creature, Anne slithers away and Jack finds her, and then they make their escape down the mountain on a long vine. This doesn't go as planned as Kong sees them and starts to pull them up. And both Anne and Jack let go of the vine, and they end up in the water below. They then swim to land as Kong chases after them. Jack and Anne get to the front gates as their remaining crew tend to them. However, instead of counting their blessings and leaving with their lives, Denim gets greedy and wants to capture Kong. They close the gates, and even the villagers decide to help ward off Kong from getting loose. However, they are no match for Kong, and he eventually breaks open the giant doors, which is another iconic reveal as you see everyone running away looking like ants as you see this giant being. Kong demolishes the village as he should, though it's not really the villagers' fault he's on the rampage, but nonetheless, I say let, let him have his fun. And in one great scene, he grabs one of the villagers, who is throwing spears at him, and then he puts them in his mouth and then rips them apart like he's eating beef jerky. <laughs> this movie was way ahead of its time. Kong later grabs another villager and stomps on him with his giant foot and flattens him like he's stomping out a cigarette. Kong is eventually knocked out by the gas bombs from the crew. Instead of leaving well enough alone, Denim orders the crew to chain him up and take him back to New York because it will make him millions. And with greedy bastards in show business like Denim, what could possibly go wrong? Come on! Come on, I got him! He'll be out for hours. Send to the ship for anchor chains and tools. What are you going to do? To build a raft to float him to the ship. Why, the whole world will pay to see this. No chains will ever hold that. We'll give him more than chains. He's always been king of his world, but we'll teach him fear. We're millionaires, boys. I'll share it with all of you. Why, in a few months, it'll be up in lights on Broadway. Kong, the eighth wonder of the world! And that's exactly what Denim does. For 20 bucks a pop, which is the equivalent to almost $400 today, a huge crowd goes to see the eighth wonder of the world. And good thing they didn't have Ticketmaster back then to add an additional 100 bucks in goddamn service fees, the crowd doesn't know what to expect. They think it's just some sort of film they're going to see. Well, are they in for a big shock? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here tonight to tell you a very strange story. A story so strange that no one will believe it. But ladies and gentlemen, seeing is believing. And we, my partners and I, have brought back the living proof of our adventure. An adventure in which 12 of our party met horrible death. And now, ladies and gentlemen, before I tell you any more, I'm going to show you the greatest thing your eyes have ever beheld. He was a king and a god in the world he knew, but now he comes to civilization, merely a captive, a show to gratify your curiosity. Ladies and gentlemen, look at Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> Miss Ann Darrell, bravest girl I have ever known. There the beast and here the beauty. 
She has lived through an experience no other woman ever dreamed of. And she was saved from the very grasp of Kong by her future husband. I want you to meet a very brave gentleman, Mr. John Driscoll. And now before I tell you the full story of our voyage, I'm going to ask the gentlemen of the press to come forward so that the audience may have the privilege of seeing them take the first photographs of Kong and his captors. All right, boys. Just narrow first alone. Stand in front of me. All set, Jack? Okay. Make it a good one. Shoot. <laughs> Don't be alarmed, ladies and gentlemen. Those chains are made of chrome steel. It's all right, Ann. Get them together, boys. They're going to be married tomorrow. Put your arm around her, Driscoll. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on. He thinks you're attacking the girl. All of them roaring. It's well pictured. Yep, no surprise, Kong doesn't like flashing bulbs, and he hasn't seen Anne since he's been uncaptured, and those steel bars are just no match for his brute strength, and then he's on the loose in New York City. Alright, look, I think everyone knows the outcome to the story, so I'll keep going, but if you're one of the few who hasn't seen King Kong, uh, just skip the next few minutes for the eventual outcome. So Kong smashes and climbs high-rise buildings. He rips people apart. He peeks through windows trying to find Anne. He finds one woman sleeping, discovers it's not her, and then drops her to the street. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty gruesome stuff, even today. Of course, he does find Anne and grabs her from the window. Unlike future versions of King Kong, the original version doesn't have Anne ever feeling any empathy for Kong. She's basically terrified at all times, even when he's somewhat calm and nurturing towards her. Another great scene was where Kong destroys an oncoming train by smashing the track and then grabbing the train with one arm while carrying Anne in the other. Of course, if you've never seen the film, you know where Kong goes, which is one of the most famous scenes in film history, as Kong climbs up the Empire State Building, only to eventually be shot down by fighter planes. This is one of the few times in the original film where the audience truly feels empathy for Kong, You know, none of this was his fault. The true villain in King Kong is Carl Denham, with his constant greed and hunger for power and fame. 
For me, the best ending would have been when Kong finally falls from the Empire State Building, that he lands on that bastard denim. And if there's anything negative about the film for me, it's that denim gets the final word. Well, Denim, the airplane's got him. Oh, no. It wasn't the airplanes. It was Beauty killed the beast. Yeah, fuck Denim. Seriously, the fact that he gets no sort of punishment is really the only sore point of the film for me. However, they do sort of get into that in the sequel, Son of Kong, in which he's pretty much ruined by the lawsuits and he has to flee from New York. But still, I say screw him. All right, the deleted scenes. In 1938, a lot of the original gruesome scenes of Kong ripping people apart were cut out due to the censors of the time. And these terrific shots were lost for decades. Almost five and a half minutes of shots of terrific material were lost. But in the 1960s, the person who was forced to edit these scenes had actually kept the footage and sold them. And then they were added back to the restoration version of the film. And the DVD version of the film I own, it's a pristine 35mm version, which comes from England. It's perfect. Now, there's an infamous lost scene called The Spider Pit. And this was never recovered and supposedly took place during the scenes where Kong drops the giant tree log into the pit on Skull Island while Jack Driscoll is hiding in a little cave underneath Kong. So instead of the crew falling to their death, they actually survived at first, but are then attacked and eaten by these giant spiders. And man, that would have been awesome to see. Marion Cooper admitted these scenes were cut not for being too gruesome, but because it kept the story from progressing. Eventually, this lost scene was discovered by the famous Monsters magazine from the 1960s, where a still photograph of these giant spiders were published. And then director Peter Jackson, who directed the 2005 version of King Kong and is an enormous fan of the 1933 version, included his vision of the spider pit in his film, though it's called an insect pit. On the special features of the 1933 DVD I have, Jackson and the team recreated the spider pit scene using the original Kong footage meshed with his work. And definitely check it out if you get a chance. Alright, some fun facts. It took years for Willis O'Brien to be properly acknowledged for his groundbreaking special effects work. He finally did in 1950 when he won an Oscar for Best Special Effects for Mighty Joe Young. O'Brien's legacy was almost like a master painter. He really wasn't appreciated for his brilliant works when he was alive, but he is now viewed as an absolute pioneer for special effects on film. Robert Armstrong died 16 hours before Miriam Cooper in April of 1973, the man who played Carl Denham and the character which was based on Cooper. On August 10th, 2004, two days after Fay Ray died, the lights of the Empire State Building were dimmed for 15 minutes in her memory. So the film continued its popularity throughout the years and was re-released to theater five times in 1938, 1942, 1946, 1952, and 1956. The success of the film is often credited for saving RKO Pictures from bankruptcy. So when pitching the idea to Fay Ray, Marion Cooper said, you'll be working with the tallest, darkest leading man in Hollywood. And she thought it was going to be Cary Grant. <laughs> 
All right, again, it's an amazing, amazing movie. If you've only seen special effects of today, you might be underwhelmed, but really, if you put on your hat of nobody had ever done anything like this before, and just seeing, especially Skull Island more than anything, I, I really don't think you can not come away with thinking this is an amazing work of art and how, actually, in many ways, it's better than anything they could do now with computer technology just because you know how labor-intensive it was. And I think if you go in with that mindset, you'll really, really enjoy the original version. At least that's my hope. All right, and then someone who also agrees with me is a classic movie enthusiast, Malin, who has been on since the beginning of this podcast way back in 2016. So he comes and talks about the original King Kong from 1933 and then I will be back next week for yet another random movie for my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with longtime guest from the beginning and that is Malin. Welcome back, Malin. Hey, Brian. Thanks for so, having me back. Absolutely. Oh, you're always invited and uh, when I had mentioned uh, the last, um, we, we always go through, well, what should we do next? And uh, we were talking about Frankenstein, and uh, we decided to talk about the original King Kong from 1933. So this will be super exciting. Now, I w is this the first version of King Kong you saw, or did you see the 1976 remake uh, with um, Jessica Lang and Jeff Bridges first? Yeah, this was absolutely the first version of King Kong mm -hmm. that I saw. Um I, again, like like I saw most of these like uh, pre-code, just post-depression, uh, universal horror movies, it was uh, totally just during my childhood, like right after Saturday morning cartoons, is like a, a creature feature matinee on TV. Mm -hmm. um, same type of thing. I probably saw it, you know, for the first time with my mom and maybe my little sister, you know, just sitting on the carpet in front of like the first house that I really re remember well watching mm -hmm. it. Um, on the you know the small screen yeah <laughs> yeah I, I definitely saw this version first so anything um any other king kong or um ape related uh movie is naturally going to be in my mind kind of compared to the nostalgia that i have uh for this version of king kong yeah and i think that's always the best way because i think if you see the the modern versions it's tough to um, you, you might downplay how amazing the original is because of just, you know, modern technology. But uh, I can only imagine for viewers that saw the original King Kong in the theater in 1933 would have been terrified. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, you, you mentioned the difference between the, the special effects that they used in this film mm -hmm. and CGI. I, I think you're right. It probably might be hard to walk it back. It, I, I don't share that because I didn't have that experience. I don't have that experience. Uh, I think because I grew up on these kind of um, practical special effects, uh, you know, CGI, I don't know that it holds the same magic for me. And I don't know if it does. I don't, I, I don't know for those who are, grow up with that as like their first experience, if that's as magical maybe as like all of the practical effects that were required um, to make King Kong uh, a successful and completed film. But like CGI, mm -hmm. you know, for example, it's it's like a, a one trick pony. Like you go into a new film and I, I think most audiences now are fairly savvy to, okay, well, pretty much anything can be accomplished with a green, ski, uh, a green screen mm -hmm. and laptop I, i'm downplaying it a bit here but, but <laughs> i'm you know, with you <laughs> yeah but but for king kong i i just watched it uh recently and it blew my mind it still blows my mind the 
the practical effects and the way that they were combined and overlap each other in really complicated ways. Um, I think I really still appreciate that. And, you know, it's some of it is a a bit hokey looking, certainly by Mm -hmm. comparison, but um, it's pretty cool. It's it's still pretty freaking cool. Um, Oh, I totally agree. I I had such a every time I watch this, I have a a more of an appreciation for it and the special effects from um, the stop motion animator uh, Willis O'Brien, because if you watch that, that first, you know, when they're on Skull Island and King Kong is fighting the the giant, uh, um, I guess it's a, a dinosaur. Man, it's it's a brutal fight. I mean, the noises and just the way you know he's like you know ripping his jaw apart. It's it's pretty graphic for especially yeah. nineteen thirty three. Yeah, that was King Kong's signature move, which still creeps yes. me out. Is the the jaw break? I think he does that to like the Pteranodon and to the uh, Tyrannosaurus looking yes creature. Very brutal. Oh, it is. It is. It, but it's. Um, yeah, I think I don't know if I guess this was pre-code, so maybe they got away with some of it because it's well, maybe it's not you know humans, and so they they can you know it's supposed to be this kind of fantasy thing. But yeah, even today I was kind of like almost shocked because you do kind of see blood pouring out, even though it's in black and white of of the uh, you know dinosaur he took out. Yeah, well, and not just that in a follow-up scene. Um, you can see the blood pouring and the creature yep. on the ground is still breathing a little bit. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty gnarly. <laughs> Absolutely. So obviously the most, the things that I, I really wanted to see as a kid was of course seeing King Kong and then of course Skull Island. But of the, of the things I always remembered the most, it was the scream from Faye Ray. And so does, how do you feel about her character? And do you think it was, uh, that, uh, her character was better in future uh, adaptations are you fine with her portrayals as Anne Darrow? Uh, okay, so that's that's a loaded question. That's a yes. really good question because on my re on my reviewing, so I I do think that through nostalgia and having grown up with those kind of special effects and the pre Harryhausen like um, miniatures and uh, all of the practical effects and the camera that they had to accomplish, you know, the relationships mm-hmm. generally in that film do not hold up. No, like not a single one of them. Um, King Kong is a jerk. Uh, her, you know, Jack Driscoll, he's not much better. No. Um, Carl Denham. He's the he's worst. Sleazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, there, there's no way out for her. Now, I, I haven't watched any of the remakes recently because I think they falter for different reasons. Um, I want to like, uh, yeah, I, I probably shouldn't comment too much. I remember seeing the, the Jessica Lange and Naomi Watts versions, mm-hmm. uh, but not recently enough to comment on them uh, compared to Fay Ray. That said, though, with Fay Ray's character, it's, it, you know, there's a lot of stuff about her, the way that that character is written and portrayed that I, I don't think really holds muster today. Mm-hmm. Um, she is really objectified in a lot of different ways by just about every every possible character and from every possible angle yeah and doesn't get a lot of breathing room i mean she starts out as uh, a poor kind of post-depression woman um trying to make ends meet on the new york streets um uh you know is taken advantage of by carl denham she's 
treated horribly by Jack Driscoll on the boat ride out there, which, I mean, talk about a bad relationship. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a man, I mean, this is horrible. The, the guy basically blames her for his sexual frustration. Yeah. And we've seen that before. That's that's not a good look. No. Any, you know? <laughs> and, and then she gets out there and Kong uh, is uh, just a huge stalker, basically. Pretty much. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So and the, and the natives the, only the natives only want to use her as a sacrifice. So yeah, she right. can't win either way. No, no. And yeah, so there's there's a lot that's going on there. Where unfortunately, I don't think her the portrayal of that character really um, survives uh, uh, um, time. Yeah, it doesn't. It's pre- it's pretty dated, you know. But on the other hand, I want to say that there are a lot of things that about relationships that are depicted in this film that maybe we hope don't survive, um, you know, the passing of the decades since that film was created. But I think they're still, you know, the traces of them are still present in society. And it's a real, uh, still, you know, some of these things are still a real problem. Absolutely. And, uh, but I think what people remember her the most is she by far had the best scream of any actress back then. Oh, yeah. Those are just spine tingling screams and, and they still resonate today. But you bring up the, the character and, and uh, Carl Denham. I mean, Robert Armstrong, it's tough. I mean, that even at the end, it's just like he can't be he can't be kind hearted even for like a <laughs> even for a second. It's just like it, it was never his fault. He never took ownership that he basically had, you know, ultimately the demise of Kong was his fault. It was. And, you know, out of all of the injustices in the film, I, he ends up getting the last word. Right. And it's really unfortunate. I mean, he gets the last word in this really great line that if you take it uncritically, um, makes this into maybe a f- the fairy tale that it doesn't survive to be, like the Beauty and the Beast fairy tale, where the Beast is really kind of beastly. and. Mm-hmm. Um, beauty is kind of objectified and there there isn't much else beyond that i think that's the part that doesn't survive for me is like the fairy tale of it mm-hmm. i don't see that anymore I, I in my most recent watching i i might have been still amazed at the practical effects and um and a lot of other things actually um but those relationships don't really hold for me the fairy tale doesn't hold for me and the tragic kong ending oh um it, it didn't play as tragically as I remember it playing for me as a kid. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting is there was a sequel that came out in actually the same year. Crazy enough. It was at the end of the year um, called son of Kong, where he does Carl Denham kind of does get his come up and he tries to make good on what he, what he did to Kong. So he, you know, he travels back there and, and tries to get back what he lost. Cause he basically became ruined after uh, King Kong. But we, again, if you, if you never have the sequel, he, he seems to get off scot-free tried to kind of make that up but uh, you know i think most audiences were just happy to see the special mm-hmm. effects at the time and yeah. uh, and the other great thing about this film is the music the score is amazing in this absolutely no it, it does a really good job of setting the tone you know and i guess the score for this was i, I don't know off the top of my head was it written specifically for this picture yes yes okay because i i think if i remember correctly uh, some of the other universal horror movies, Dracula in my mind sticks out, the, heavily uses like Tchaikovsky, mm-hmm. uh, Swan Lakes, um, and maybe some other pieces. I don't know if that had very much of an original score. What stands out to me about that movie was the Tchaikovsky, but this one, um, yeah, its own unique score really does a great, 
uh, job of setting the scene and the tone for the film. It's uh, it's pretty epic in its own right. Yeah, so Max Steiner uh, wrote uh, the entire score for this. He also did Casablanca and, and other famous uh, oh, films no. of the time. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's. I think that that actually makes the film that much better. As great as it is, if let's say there was no score, kind of like Dracula, where it's you know the original was so silent and you just hear kind of you know hissing. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is uh, it definitely uh, it plays up to the the terror and uh, and sometimes the sadness, especially towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, of the, of the film. So you recently rewatched what, what are some of your favorite scenes uh, in the film? Oh gosh. You know, this movie titled King Kong, it packs so much more than just King Kong. Like mm-hmm. you said, there's the, the going out to skull Island, the dinosaurs. Uh, there's so much going on in this film. Um, some of my favorite scenes, it's, you know, it's got to come down to uh, the fight scenes, with the um, the miniature and um, uh, stop motion dinosaurs, but also like King's Lair up in the mountains mm-hmm. in those caves. That's I, I think that's pretty amazing. I, I love those scenes. Just the way that they're the composition of them on the screen. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of depth to that. Even when you're inside the cave, you can see out at multiple levels. And then when he goes out on the terrace where the pteranodon tries to come down and take um, Anne away, you can see down, way far down into the jungle below. You get a sense that, you know, Kong is uh, very used to heights, um, uh, even in that first half of the film. Um, but I'm an architecture nerd, and I yes. think that. So I... I do get distracted by looking at the New York skyline mm-hmm. um, in the early parts of the film. You get some uh, shots of New York City in the 1930s, which I just geek out on because it's such a uh, such a great kind of time capsule um, snapshot of New York City at that um, during that decade, like right after the Depression, when you still have all of this um, modern architecture um and there's a lot going on there. Like film actually captures some of that texture in his modern architecture. There's uh, machines of modern warfare, even. Yeah. And, but at the same time, there are people struggling um, just to get like an apple or a piece of bread. Right. Um, and all of that, I think, is really, really fascinating to me. And not just that, but the the differences between the the jungle landscapes. And the modern landscapes, not just the differences, but the similarities, like I mentioned, with Kong's um, kind of uh, cave lair up in uh, Skull Rock, uh, looking down on the jungle below. Later in the film, you get like a uh, the modern reflection of that when he climbs up um, the Empire State Building. So maybe maybe if you're still thinking about that scene or if it resonated with you, you might be thinking, oh, he's trying to get, you know, to a high point to something that's familiar um, and ends up um, being destroyed there. Um, All of that stuff is really interesting to me. And those, those images, I think, even if I didn't understand them in the way that I do now, those are, those are the images that stuck with me. Um, from my first viewing as a child um, to my next viewing, which was probably like 10 or 15 years later. It's mm-hmm. the, the dinosaur scenes, uh, Kong uh, in the caves, um, and the, the 
terrace above the jungle where the pteranodon attacks, and then uh, the modern theater, um, uh, Kong's Escape, and then the Empire State Building. Like all of that resonated to me and really stuck in my imagination um, well, as a kid. Well, what's, it, what's interesting is I think if you go back to the beginning in, in 33, this might have been the first time many viewers ever saw the Empire State Building because, you know, motion pictures were still relatively new. So I think it was very important uh, to kind of show the modern version of or the, you know, the USA in a certain uh, aspect where, you know, most people that have never traveled to New York would have never seen that before. So that's really cool. This is a can of worms for me. (laughs) So careful. So uh, one interesting thing that I want to point out, uh, again, this is from my architectural history uh, background, is that um, I think you're right to point out that uh, the Empire State Building um, is really prominently featured in this film. And it kind of puts the Empire State Building on the national map in mm-hmm. terms of like uh, modernistic as- aspirations and uh, especially uh, against the recent background of the Depression. So it's right. uh, really interesting in that sense. But there's, there's one little tidbit I want to pull out of the movie a little bit. So Kong, when he is transferred from the island to the New York theater and to the modern city, he's then labeled as the eighth wonder of the world. Well, there was another eighth wonder of the world in that film. When the Empire State Building was originally marketed and advertised to the public, it was um, flagged as a potential eighth wonder of the world. Uh. So if you want to do kind of a a geeky reading of the end, you have these two uh, candidates for wonders of the world kind of battling it out. And, you know, ultimately, um, you know, the ape, the animal, the the ancient, you know, anything that's not modern is... Uh, killed off at the end and you end up with the empire state building standing as like this icon of uh wonder of modernity of uh of america kind of coming out of the depression and kind of moving forward is maybe i'm reading too much into that but i don't know i love that connection so terribly much yeah i didn't even think about that you're totally right and that totally makes sense that yes uh, the the for good or bad, you know, going yeah. into the industrial revolution has taken over from the old world, which mm-hmm. all the old world being, you know, the the jungles where they they found Kong. So yeah, absolutely. And maybe the old world isn't meant <laughs> like maybe it's not a good thing. Maybe we shouldn't be destroying uh, things that have been around for for many, many, many years, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the lessons that definitely doesn't maybe hold true. But it's a, but it is a snapshot of mm-hmm. that period because so much was changing and so much had just happened and was i i don't want to read too much into it in in the sense of what was about to happen in the next decade yeah but but yeah there there are a lot of statements that i think are uh being made in that last scene that i'm sure resonated at the time and i think when i saw it Oh, gosh, probably in the early 1980s. You know, it still resonated to me. There was um, I wasn't familiar with the New York skyline outside of that movie. So I was able to appreciate mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, this uh, largest primate versus the tallest building in the world was kind of still factual. I didn't know that there were there were other taller buildings in the world when I saw it. But right. Um, but I was still able to appreciate the the wonder of those two ideas next to each other now today we look back at it and we think well this you know there are these interesting comparisons happening but 
they, you know, those are the types of things that don't necessarily hold up because if you start pulling these thread too much, then you have to come to terms with, yeah, well, this film does play, you know, a lot of things against each other in order for that last scene to work, including like, um, uh, primitive versus modern, um, black versus white mm-hmm. in terms of race. Um, and yeah, that this, uh, probably needs a much more critical reading, um, than this film provides. Sure, <laughs> it just takes a-, a lot of things at face value. Sure. And, and I, it's also bringing up an interesting point that I didn't think about until now is how would, you know, it is at the height of the depression. How would Denham think that he was going to make a lot of money in this theater uh, for people that could barely afford food to go see the, I mean, granted it's, they, they eat their ninth wonder of the world, but people didn't have access, you know, that, that disposable income to just go to the theater to even see something as cool as this, you know? Yeah. The incongruity of that theater audience. I think that right. stands out to me more now. So think of the film this way. I was just thinking of this, just as like a, a weird mental activity. So the film is kind of divided up into two parts. Right. And the, right. those two parts almost play out you know, roughly the same way. It's like two acts of the same thing. Yeah. So you have Kong is encountered, uh, falls in love with the girl. This creates like this weird reaction in him. He rampages, mm-hmm. um, destroys his environments and then is subdued by the white man. OK, in the right. first half, uh, Anne is offered up as a human sacrifice. He falls in love with her, maybe, you know, goes kind of crazy, uh, kills a lot of uh, people and um, uh, dinosaurs. Creatures, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then he rampages through the uh, through the tribal village, mm-hmm. is stepping on people, biting people, and whatever. Pretty much the same thing happens in the second half of the film. Yeah. Uh, you put him on the theater stage in front of the modern tribe of theater goers, and what ends up happening is he sees her, he goes a little bit crazy, he escapes, uh, rampages through the city, killing the modern tribe, and then mm-hmm. ends up going up and is killed again by the white man in a different way. First, right. it's the, he's not killed, but, you know, subdued by the gas bomb, and then in the second half, the modern biplanes, um, modern for 1933, um, kill him and he falls down, and, you know, uh, the white man gets to knock him down twice. Um, right. Yeah, he's so, taken so, against his will both times. One, he's not killed, but the second one, of course, he is. So Yeah, yeah. exactly. But both times, at, yeah, at, like I say, at the hand of the white man. It's uh, interesting because when I watched it again, I, just the point I just wanted to make was that the theater audience the wealthy theater audience just post-depression are being compared to what we saw of the city in the first act at the beginning mm-hmm. of the first act with the women in the food line, but more so I think by the, the tribe in, um, in their village, because then it, it ends up being kind of the same thing. They're both kind of these uh, silent mass audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not silent completely, you know, the, no, <laughs> the, the tribe on the Island, they're not given any, uh, speaking parts, really, not any English speaking parts. It's no. in othering them. But the uh, the American audience is uh, it's more affluent. It's not. You know, it's a very different kind of situation. It's a problematic one, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's kind of interesting the dualities of how those two kind of populations. I think there's more fear and respect on the island as opposed to just straight up curiosity of the uh, the American audiences. So, uh, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's totally different. So, yeah, they they don't think anything's going to happen to them in the theater until all, all hell breaks loose. Then then they get where I think the 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 natives on the island definitely were 
afraid that if if something went wrong and they didn't respect Kong, that it's it's going to get really bad. <laughs> so, yeah. And it did. Yeah. You know, I've never seen the 2005 Peter Jackson version. I want to, but it's just like I just saw how long it was. And I was like, really, do we need to <laughs> do we need to do this? But um, you have seen it, but obviously you've only seen it once or twice. I've only seen it once. Okay. Um, my impression of it was that it was it was good. Naomi Watts was good in it, mm-hmm. but it was so overblown. Mm-hmm. It was just too much and i think i just kind of um there were just too many insects Mm. and giant things on the island and i just kind of tuned out after a while peter jackson with the director was a he's a king kong fanatic so i think this was definitely a of uh uh, he loved this character yeah it was it was was faithful to the original Mm -hmm. but as far as I remember it being faithful to the original, it was take the original, put it in, with all of the trappings of uh, modern cinematic technology and dial it up to 11 and then blow through the wall and go to 12. And <laughs> that, that movie, which, you know, now that I'm thinking of it, wasn't unlike the treatment that The Hobbit got. Right. You know, it was, uh, it, you know, fairly faithful to the original, maybe too much so, and then just taking it. A little too far. It doesn't. It didn't need to go quite that far to the point where it was just. I don't know. It just. It. It. It, it didn't resonate with me in a way that has drawn me back to it. Well, definitely, The Hobbit is a product of Peter Jackson going full blown because that that book isn't that long, and to make it a a, a long, <laughs> it was a two part or three. You know, like it was. Yeah. It was yeah. such a long, long movie, but yeah, that's product of today too, I guess. Yeah, so maybe King Kong. Oh, and actually, I'm probably reading too much into this, mm-hmm. but I think that maybe King Kong, the overbloated King Kong, was maybe uh, Peter Jackson transitioning towards uh, going too far with The Hobbit, because I think he made King Kong. Oh, that's a good point. In between Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. Now, I'm just going off of anecdotal memory by saying that. I'm not, you, you can um, fact check me on it but my brain wants to think that he made that in between the two i believe you did you're correct i uh let's see hobbit came out in 2006 so yeah yeah, yeah. it was in I, between so good job yeah well and i think that king kong was pretty well received oh yeah definitely um, in the theaters so that probably i mean i can see why now, I'm just realizing this. I'm just I'm having an epiphany. I'm sorry I'm taking you along for the ride. <laughs> no, okay. um, but I, I'm thinking, you know, the with the positive reception for King Kong with, that went all out, you know, it kind of makes me uh, understand how things got to the level that they did with The Hobbit. Yeah, well. no, I agree. I agree. And, and just today in general, I think because films are so expensive to go to, at least they were to go to the theater, I think they feel like, oh, we'll give people you know, the, the the best bang for their buck, like the Avengers being like, you know, a six hour, you know, the last Avengers movie because they split up in two. That's ridiculous. No superhero movie uh. needs to be that long. Uh, I'm back to the old school. It's like, you know, less is more. I think, you you know, give me mm-hmm. a good 90 minutes, especially for a comedy, and I'll be totally happy. You don't need to give me extra. If you want to give me extra, release it on the DVD and I'll, I'll purchase it. But, you know, in the original, right. you know, there is something about editing and having a good editor that really makes a, a movie streamlined. But that's that's just me. That's just, Well, that's just you. But I think that's a lot of us as well. I mean, think mm-hmm. about, um, to, to this, uh, to your point, um, 
think about I, I immediately, and I think a lot of your listeners probably would think immediately of Jaws, and, the original Jaws and Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are, those were, and I think remain as successful and haunting and creepy and disturbing as, uh, as they are because of the less is more approach. Yes. Either either by artistic um, decision um, or by technological challenges dictating what can mm-hmm. be shown on the screen. But uh, those those two movies work and don't require, you know, too much more than what they give us. And I think work because of um, what little is there. Absolutely. You're totally right. If Jaws was made today, it would be probably three hours long and it doesn't need to be, you know. Well, and it would be like Deep Blue Sea. Have you seen that? I haven't, but I've, I've heard about it. Yes. OK, don't see it. Okay. <laughs> Coming straight from Maryland. That's right. Yeah. Well, sorry. <laughs> well, there's no need to see it. If you've seen Jaws, Deep Blue Sea isn't going right. to give you anything that Jaws didn't. Jaws is going to give you lasting trauma. Deep Blue Sea is going to be forgotten pretty quickly. You know, right. by the t- you know, by the time you see Sharknado, you know, you're <laughs> not thinking of Deep Blue Sea anymore. And I think that's probably speaks better to Jaws than it does to Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> yeah, I think Sharknado is in the, you know, um, honoring kind of like Piranha, you know, where Piranha yeah. was definitely a spoof. And that's fun because, you know, it's a spoof going in just like Sharknado, whereas Deep Blue Sea thinks it's going to be, you know, the reinvention of Jaws and it just isn't. No, it's not. So I'm sorry, we got off on. No, that's okay. And, say, at least we're talking about creature features still, but yeah. <laughs> I'm sure no. you have a better agenda. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I love having you on because I love on the you know the journeys this takes us, just like the movies. And so we'll, we'll wrap it up with, uh, this is definitely your favorite. Oh, actually, there's one question I wanted to ask. Between King Kong and Godzilla, who do you like better as a oh, whole? Oh, what a horrible question. <laughs> um, what a horrible question. Um, I have, I'm not prepared for this. Um, I'm going to say, gosh, okay. I'm going to say King Kong. Um, do I have to justify it? I don't think I can justify it, uh, very easily because, oh, Godzilla is pretty awesome because like, you know, I'm an architecture nerd. So Godzilla steps on everything and it's just (laughs) so, um, uh, it's so satisfying to watch, you know, in a really dark way. Um, but I will, I'll do this. How about do you, obviously you preferred the original Gojira over whatever they did after. Uh, yeah. 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 That, that, that's an easier, that's an easier one for me, you know, and it's unfortunate because I, 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 I'm totally on board for having like revivals of, um, uh, creature features or, you know, mm-hmm classic monster movies and finding uh, something new to love, but sure. It hasn't happened for me yet. Um, I certainly, uh, I have watched the gods, the, the recent Godzilla remakes, reboots, rehashes and pseudo sequels, but no, not really, not really terribly interested in going back to those any more than the original Godzilla. Now, what, what I will say um, in my gut, um, reaction favoring king kong um i think that king kong is uh a tighter film than the original yeah um and it's got a lot more action a lot more variety uh, a lot more of the things that tick my boxes going on for good and for worse mm-hmm. um so I'm, I'm gonna the more i think about it the more i want to stick with that decision um as we're having i i think a stronger um decision for king kong over godzilla but but I grew up with both, you know. I was growing up with 
uh, you know, seeing King uh, King Kong and Godzilla um, right. Saturday matinees. But yeah, King Kong's got a bit, maybe a bit more going for it. You know, the the complexity of some of those shots. I, I could be speaking out of turn, but I think Godzilla comes down to, you know, it's pretty obviously a man in a suit and sure. I'm stepping on, you know, plastic models and you know, you know, train set models. I don't want to like undercut it too much. Maybe I should watch it again before I, you know, slack it off as being. Um, well, a small, a smaller budget film, definitely of the yeah. know, of that time, yeah. Yeah, and I do. You know, speaking of the creature feature, I remember how excited I was to see Godzilla versus King Kong or King Kong versus Godzilla, uh, which was a 1962 kind of uh, cheaply made film, but it was still a lot of fun to see it. it it's not a great film, but it, it was fun to watch at the time. Maybe I should try and put that into my queue. That is not <laughs> one of the Godzilla uh, films that I've seen. Godzilla or King. Well, and, and they're making a remake of it. So because with the what? Yeah. So oh. 2021. It, well, who knows now? But I know it was in production. So we'll see. Right, right, right. So I've got, so my time is limited. I have to see it so that I can be jaded yes. against the new one. Or maybe this is a good opportunity for me to see the new one and then see the old one and <laughs> see if maybe I'm just. You know, when it comes to universal horror movies, just too um, influenced by nostalgia and kind of rosy um, feelings of encountering monsters for the first time. And maybe I can see the new film kind of un- unfiltered, unjaded. Um, well, you, you're going to go in knowing that the, that King Kong vs. Godzilla is not a good movie, the, the original. <laughs> so if you have fun with it, I think you'll have it'll be fine. But yeah, don't expect anything as quality as is the originals that came out, you know, in 33 and, and whenever good year, I think good year came out in 51. So okay. yeah, something around that. Well, let, let me turn the tables on you because I, th- I think you're already um, suggesting what your answer would be, but mm-hmm. between King Kong and Godzilla, uh, which is your favorite and between the original King Kong and the remakes, uh, which do you prefer? Let's start with the latter question, King Kong versus its remakes. So as a kid, I think I was Godzilla. Cause I just, for whatever reason, he's, I, I think I like the breathing fire. Uh, the original, you know, the, the, the Japanese version, you see a lot of the monster, which, you know, a lot of the creature features, you didn't, they, they really held back. You didn't see a lot of things. Um, you know, the scary parts, uh, they built up the tension, but with Gojira, you see Godzilla throughout the whole film, which is a lot, which was great. Um, King Kong, I loved, um, but I think there were just more out there to see Godzilla than King mm-hmm. Kong. So I think there was just more available than just the one film. As I've grown up, I, I I think I like King Kong a little bit better. So I think mm-hmm. probably because it hasn't been overly saturated. So uh, yeah, but, that's true. But Godzilla is so successful, you know, in in Japan that I, you know, how could they? You know that it's basically the superhero version of for them. You know that's like it's just it's a, a huge franchise, so they had to keep releasing. Uh, as for today, I I like the the Skull Island version. I kind of like the reboot reboot of um, of King Kong, but um, yeah, oh, we'll I've see. Not seen that one? I have not seen that one. It's not bad. I mean, I don't go in expecting anything groundbreaking, but it, it was entertaining. You know. So is it a reboot in the sense that it's no? I mean, it's a remake. Or it's kind of it's. It's kind of a standalone thing. I get, I mean, essentially it is a reboot, but they don't, I don't think they really get into the backstory. I, I, I saw it once and I, you know, it was a long time ago. So it's, uh, yeah, well, I think it's I worth take, seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I might take your, um, take you up on your recommendations, both for Godzilla versus, mm-hmm. um, King Kong, but also King, um, Kong Skull Island. It is yeah. 
like I know your your listeners aren't aware, but it is Saturday. Uh, <laughs> it is the perfect time for me to watch a creature feature. There like, you right go. around noon on a Saturday. I'm totally into it. I think we'll leave it at that then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's get, we're going to stop. He's going to go watch these films. And uh, as always, thank you so much for your thoughts, Malin. Thanks, Brian. Uh, fun as always. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.